0: We enter into the unhappy sermons for several weeks. This is the word of the Lord, John chapter 18, verse 12. It was written long ago and for the saints of God when it was first delivered. But God being an infinitely wise author of the scriptures that also wrote it for you today. This is God's word. Listen carefully. So the band of soldiers... And their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Let's pray again. Father, we do ask your blessing upon your word for your preaching for your people. This is not our activity. Were it to be so, it would be small and weak. Instead, the reading and the preaching of the scriptures is your activity for it is your word. And we know your ways are higher than ours, and your spirit is tremendously powerful. And so we ask that he would work, that we might understand, believe, and be changed in his work in us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So we went down to Clinton for the uh, eclipse. And it was wonderful. Clinton would be the correct pronunciation. I'm aware of this. No T. And I am, as you know, a science nerd, and so I was prepared. We were ready for the little crescent, uh, uh, you know, shadows. We were ready for the little shadow worms that come before the eclipse, both of which we saw, which was amazing. We were ready with, uh, to see how the eclipse would look so that you could see it. I had the glasses. We had, uh, I knew a way to get the binoculars to work so we could watch it on the ground. It was, it was really cool. I knew what it would look like. I had prepared myself for everything, for all of it. I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew it would get cool. I knew it would get dark. I knew the cicadas would come out. I was ready for it. The thing, however, I was not ready for is what it would look like. I mean, I'd seen pictures of an eclipse before. I mean, I've seen pictures of a total eclipse before. You know, I mean, it's not uncommon to see. They're beautiful with the, you know, the black center circle, and then you see the corona of the sun outside. It's magnificent. The part, however, I was not prepared for is the part that the cameras can't capture. And it is the brilliance of the corona of the sun. When the moon goes in between and the sun gets dark and you can take your glasses off and you look up at at the eclipse, it's this perfectly black little circle with what looks like, I mean, my first thought was that that has to be what the glory cloud of God looks like. I mean, you see the pictures on your television or on your computer now, and it's like, well, it's just this kind of whitish light, and it's like, no it, it looks like somebody's torn a hole in the galaxy it, it look it, it suddenly begin to understand kind of what what you know John and Revelation like. Well, it was like this it was like that I, I don't have the words to describe it or Ezekiel at the beginning where he's describing the glory cloud of God and he's like I, I saw something that looked like crystal that was reflecting something that looked like light and there were rainbow and wheels within wheels and stuff I, I don't know it was just so amazing that I just ran out of words I'm sorry I, I don't have it one of the few times, you know me, I don't run out of words often. It was one of those where it was like, I, I don't know how to describe this. The light is so brilliant, and the darkness next to it so black, and they touch each other, and I don't know what to do with this, and it's amazing. And the contrast, right on the event horizon, you know, where it's perfectly black and perfectly light, and it's just staggering. John chooses to tell the story of the trial of Jesus very much like that event horizon of the eclipse where you have perfect darkness and perfect brilliance held side by side very closely, very obviously so that you get to see the contrast between the two. You get to see how excellent one side is and how much of a failure the other side is. Another way that you might be able to understand how this works is like it's when you're a kid. If you ever did projects like right next to your parents, when I was young, my I helped my parents re-roof the house. And my dad and I up on the roof trying to nail shingles together, you know, and dad would just, you know, doom, 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 and just he was a machine. You know, my nails are all growing and crooked and we're hoping my portion of the roof doesn't leak because you get to see how clumsy and oafish I am compared to dad's brilliance right next. John tells this portion of the story of Jesus in such a way where he's holding two things before you right at the same time so you don't miss it. One's brilliant and one's an oaf. One is this perfect glory cloud of God Almighty and one is darkness. You see, the other gospels, when they tell that they use a similar contrast, the contrast they use is between Jesus and the Jews. Not John. John actually does something different. He uses a contrast between Jesus and Peter. His own man his own disciple, one that he loves, one that he's going to restore not terribly long from now. But John uses this story to contrast. Let's look at how good Jesus is, and we're going to hold one of the best men on the planet up, and we're going to show you he looks like an oaf compared to Jesus. One of the best of the best, one of the greatest that humanity has to offer at this time. He's an oaf compared to Jesus. You remember it starts in the beginning of chapter 18 where Jesus intentionally takes the disciples out to the garden uh, where he's going to be captured. He intentionally takes the eleven. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that the meeting will happen there and he goes willingly. And Judas shows up with the soldiers and it's not one or two. It's a whole bunch of them, which is going to be important to understand Peter's interaction with with one of the guards here in just a minute, one of the servants well, the guy's like, did I see you in the garden? Well, I mean, you would know if there was four of you. I mean, it's pretty easy if there's four guys in there. There's a whole bunch of people in there, and it's a big crowd, and it would be hard to tell. And Jesus identifies himself. He initiates the conversation. He forces the thing, in fact, so much so that his glory shows forth that it staggers the guard's And we got to see last week this kind of final point of don't, don't mistake good intentions for obedience. And Peter, with the best of intentions, pulls out his short sword and decides he himself personally is going to overthrow Rome and tries to start hacking people. And he swings at the most threatening of them all, a servant boy right there in front of him. And the servant boy dives out of the way and loses an ear in the process. And I poke fun at Peter so we see the contrast, but it unfortunately continues in the passage. Verse 12, the giant band of soldiers, their captain, the officers of the Jews, their servants, all of them together bind Jesus. They tie his hands in some form or fashion. And what happens to the disciples? Most of them at that point scatter. Remember Jesus said in the previous section, look, you want me, take me, let them go. So most of them do, they flee. And they take him here in the darkness in the night and they take him to Annas, who is an important and significant figure in the New Testament. See, Annas used to be the high priest, and he was staggeringly corrupt. So much so they actually know, historians know, he was filthy rich, and the way that he got his wealth was by taking it from the, the money that was paid on sacrifices. He was functionally overcharging people on their sacrifices and then taking the profit. We have, well, um, we have similar people today, but not here, thankfully. He makes a huge profit that his family gets incredibly wealthy off of and is staggeringly corrupt. In fact, he's actually so corrupt, he's so powerful on so much of a problem, Rome removes him from power. That's how bad he is. Rome's like, no, seriously, like you can't be guy in charge anymore. You've got to be out of this. So he steps out. And the next guy that follows him suddenly doesn't live very long. They don't know entirely why yet, but he's not in office very long after that. And then the guy that follows him are Annas' five sons, one son-in-law, and one grandson, while Annas is still alive. You can see how this works. He's like the Godfather. He's the power behind the throne. He's the one who's lurking in the shadows, who's pulling all the strings, who's controlling all of Jewish authority without actually being in a position of power. He's the Godfather, the one who runs it all. So they lead Jesus to Annas, to this tremendously powerful man. He's the scary guy in all of Jerusalem. In fact, actually, it kind of clues us into the quality of this guy. Annas is such a great guy that he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the one who's in charge now. And Caiaphas is the one who's like, you know what? If it makes everybody happy, we'll just kill him. It's fine. Who's casually throwing out murder as a solution to his problems. And I mean, you kind of worry about people that plan murder anyways, but then the ones who throw it out so casually are really disturbing. He's a sociopath. He's a nightmare. And Annas fits in with him perfectly. And you see, John sets the stage to let us know exactly what's going on when Jesus is taken into Annas' house and uh, Peter goes with him. We're going to find out in a second. And John, well, it, it's not like they're just walking into somebody's home. It's not like, hey, you know what, let's just, we'll go see the mayor. It'll be fine. We can have a conversation. It'll be great. You know, Annas is the one who knows where the bodies are buried. Like, he's that guy. He's the guy that, like, makes people disappear. He's the one who is the ultimate authority, humanly speaking, for the Jews. He is the scariest and the most evil of them all. The house they're going into is like going into the belly of the beast. It's the bad place. And so we get to see this punctuation of Jesus being brought in uh, under chains. He's you know, brought in, uh, being restricted and bound. And then verse 15 takes and says, look, Peter followed Jesus. And we would say, "Yay! all right, Peter, look at you. You've been a boof just a second ago, but now you're following Jesus. And that's a good idea. And so did another disciple. John, wonderful, we've got Peter and we've got John. All the rest ran away, but we got two. This is good. In fact, actually we find out that somehow John, we actually, commentators today, the theologians today, still don't know how this works, but John had a connection in the house somehow. We don't know how, but so when they get there, Jesus is brought in, John walks in with him. And Peter gets stopped at the outside by the uh, you know, big scary little teenage girl that's guarding the door. <laughs> And uh, so John goes in and looks like, where'd Peter go? Hang on now. And so he has to go back and get Peter to let him in. And the house would have been arranged in a square and in the center would have been a courtyard. And the courtyard, probably in this house, because it's so rich, would have been lowered so that Jesus would have been brought in down to the center With you'd have Annas and Caiaphas up in the back. And then you would have had people watching around the outside and you'd be able to stand under the porch or stand under the portico there and watch the proceedings. So John goes and gets Peter. And this is where, as he's telling the story, he begins to highlight the contrast. Here, Peter, the great, courageous, heroic Peter, right? The one who tried to assault the Roman guards and cut off the ear of a servant boy. Peter, the one who, even though his life is in danger, is following Jesus even into Annas' house, which is the scariest place on earth for one of the disciples to be. Verse 16. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter as he's walking in, aren't you one of his disciples? Like, weren't you, weren't you with him? Like, no, no, of course not. And you're like, oh, come on, Peter. I mean, I, I understand the motivation. You're in the scariest of scary places. You're in the house of the guy who hates you more than anyone. I understand the motivation that, you know what, I mean, we we do, I have poked fun at Peter for years about lying to the servant girl. But, I mean, there's a real reason for it. It's not like he's just, you know, acting the buffoon for no reason. This girl actually has the potential to end his life. All she has to do is say, oh, by the way, when you take Jesus, take him too. He's one of his. It's actually a serious thing, but you're still like, oh, oh, come on. And so Peter, the great Simon Peter, one of the great figures in church history, even up to this point. I mean, this is a guy who has faith when no one else has faith. Right? This is a guy who has professed that Jesus is the Son of God before anybody else. I mean, this guy is staggering in his commitment to Christ and yet failed. And John describes how he's brought in and he stands with the guards and he's warming his hands with the servants. It's like looking at the center of the eclipse. It's black, it's, it's dark, it's a complete and total failure. And then on the contrast, he takes us immediately into the glory cloud of God as he describes how Jesus interacts Christ, in the midst of the belly of the beast, in the midst of the most dangerous and darkest of places, he's taken in, and Annas begins to question him. And again, it lets you know exactly who this guy is by what he questions him about. Remember, I mean, he could have said, you've been walking around saying that you're God. We don't believe you. That's a problem. You're You're blasphemous. And, and Jesus has been walking around saying he is God. He, he could have said that. He could have, you know, thrown a, a, a tantrum about you're raising people from the dead. That's not allowed. I'm not, I don't know why that wouldn't be allowed, but it's not allowed. He could have done anything. What does he start with? <laughs> How is it you have so many disciples? What are you telling them that they're following you? You see, he's asking, it's the numbers game. It's the it's a power question. It's it's not a real question asking who Jesus is. It has nothing to do with who the person or work of you know, what the person or work of Christ is, it has nothing to do with what Jesus is actually teaching. It has everything to do with numbers and with power. How is it that you, an uneducated carpenter, could get a crowd like this? I mean, just a couple of days ago, they were trying to crown you king at the triumphal entry. How do you do it? How do you get your people so populous so quickly? Now, the other thing that's important to note is that in Jewish law, it's actually illegal to question the accused. In fact, actually, you can't question them directly. It's against the Jewish law at this point. You have to have witnesses. And you had to question the witnesses. And the witnesses had to agree, not just on the big stuff, but on the details as well. And so we actually have an idea of what's going on here is really illegal. I mean, one, it's happening in the middle of the night. Two, they didn't actually take him to the proper authorities. They took him to the Godfather first. And three, what's the Godfather asking him? He's asking him questions designed to trap him that are directly pointed to Christ. This is trap among traps. And you would expect this would be the time. If ever Jesus is going to fail, if ever Jesus is going to have a flaw, if ever his faith is going to falter, if ever he's going to wonder in the Father's plan for him, this would be it maybe. And what does Jesus do? <laughs> he answers a different question. Beautiful. Instead of answering the question about his disciples and maybe exposing them to risk, particularly while two of them knuckleheads are standing on the other side of the wall, instead he says, no, 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 look, look, I've spoken openly to the world. I've, I've taught in the synagogues. I've taught in the temple. I've said it where all the Jews are gathered together. If you wanted to know something, you could ask anybody that's listened to my teaching. And that's a really interesting answer that Christ gives. Because he's in essence saying, look, I am 100% consistent and faithful, ask anyone. And that is a serious answer. I mean, we talk about this, you know, would you bet your life on something? Would you ever bet your life on something that you were 100%, 100% consistent and right and faithful in anything in your life? And that's, in essence, the answer that Christ gives. Look, you can ask absolutely anyone. I've said it everywhere in the public sphere. I am 100% innocent and 100% faithful and 100% consistent. Let's have a go. Why don't you go ask the people who listened? There have been a lot of them. You see, it's for this reason that the, the guard standing next to Jesus smacks him. Punches him, you know, roughs him up. Because they understand what Jesus has done is insulted uh, the false high priest Annas by accusing him, and indirectly, of violating the law. Because he is, actually, 100%. Jesus is not answering the question that he's actually asking and is instead calling attention to the fact that he shouldn't even be asking him a question in the first place. Go ask the witnesses. Remember, that's how Jewish law works. You have to ask the witnesses. Go ask the witnesses. Stop asking me. He's calling them on their own rules. He's calling them on the Old Testament, the Deuteronomic law. He's calling them to be obedient to what God has set forth. And what do they do? They assault him. You see, John chapter 1 being fulfilled that Christ, the light, would come into the world and the world would reject him. His own people would reject him. They would shun him and turn from him. Jesus being faithful, faithful, faithful here. So they punch him. You think, well, maybe he's going to lose his temper. I mean,. I don't know about you, if you ever gotten a bonk in the nose, man, it's like instant rage. You know, your eyes water and rage sets in. And then like 10 minutes later, you're like, why, why did I get so angry? I was a bonk on the nose, man. And uh, whatever reason, is fury that could follow. What does Jesus do? <laughs> 23, he up. if any, I, anything I said was wrong, tell me what was wrong. If what I said was right, why do you assault me? Why are you punching me? Why are you striking me? He calls him again on his own law. If I've done something wrong, tell me. But if I haven't, you again are in the wrong. He's calling them on their own rules. And what does Annas do at this point? Well, yep, yeah, no, this uh, dog and pony show's over. We're going to send him to the right guy. Obviously, it's not working correctly here in the middle of the night. Our only option now is to kill him or to send him on to someone else. So it's time to send him on to someone else. So John sets the contrast. Peter, the best of men, failing. And Jesus, the perfect God, unfailing. What do you think pattern's going to follow? Well, it's going to happen again, isn't it? So he cuts back scene change. Back to Peter. Peter's standing there warming himself with the servants and with the guards. And one of them says, hey, you know, I think I recognize you. I'm pretty sure you're also one of his disciples, aren't you? I mean, you're one of those guys. You're with Jesus. He's like, no, no, not not me again. Oh, Peter, failure again. Come on, Peter. And then verse 26, and this is, I I love this little bit of info that John throws in because he's standing there. The third person to talk to him here is one of the servants, so not particularly threatening, but uh, also happens to be a relative of the man whose ear was cut off, (laughs) who also happened to have been in the garden. And he has this kind of, uh, I love the grammar of it, benign sounding question. Didn't I see you in the garden with him? I mean, no offense, you're likely to remember the guy who cut off your cousin's ear. (laughs) I mean, mean, seriously, if I was standing out in the dark and I saw someone take a sword and try to cut my cousin's head off, and my cousin dove out of the way and lost their ear, I'm going to remember that guy's face for a long time. It's a benign-sounding question, but it's one he knows the answer to. He knows exactly who Peter is. And he's like, this is your chance, Peter. I mean, as the reader, you're thinking, all right, you failed Jesus twice. Mr. Good Intentions, you failed Jesus twice. Here, he's actually setting you up for success because he's highlighting your heroism in the garden. Look, I remember I just saw you in the garden. You're the guy who tried to cut somebody's head off. Come on, you're that guy, right? Right? And in the moment of heroism, failure. Peter denies it again and immediately the rooster crows and you're like, oh yeah, we were told about that. He would deny Christ. And the scene changes in 28. And we're going to look at this portion more in depth next week. But he's taken into Caiaphas' house in the early morning. And then eventually taken into Pilate's, and again, Jesus, honorable, 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 honorable to the end. You see, John is setting a contrast before us, and this is one of the things the the authors of Scripture, the human authors do with great regularity in the Holy Spirit, is to set contrast so that we get a sense of perspective. Because perspective sometimes is quite hard to gain. I've used the illustration before. Nikki and I went to the Grand Canyon for our honeymoon. First thing you get out of the car and you walk up to the Grand Canyon, my first thought was, it looks photoshopped. It's so big you lose perspective and it looks fake. Part of what the scriptures are constantly trying to do is hold for us a sense of perspective about who Jesus is. And so here what it's doing is holding one of the greatest men in human history, and saying one of the greatest men in human history next to Jesus looks and is evil. You're like, well, I mean, that, that seems a bit harsh, maybe? I mean, a bit harsh. Because it, it, in essence, it's actually calling our attention to kind of two things in terms of application or principles to learn. One is to, again, never lose the marvel, that that sense of wonder at the brilliance and beauty of Jesus. You see, that's part of why the scriptures are so adamant and so frequent in using these contrasts is so that it constantly keeps fixed in our mind how beautiful and lovely and brilliant Jesus is. So that when we look at him and when we read the scriptures and we think about him and we see him in the Psalms or in other places, we go, you know, he really is magnificent. Because the Lord knows our human hearts, our natural propensity, our natural tendency is to just see him as just like me, maybe smarter, but not really sometimes because I'm pretty smart. And instead it's calling us to think about Jesus as brilliant and this beautiful contrast of how completely other and different and faithful he is. At the same time, it does provide a stern warning for us as God's people. Here you have Peter, the great Simon Peter, the great hero of the church. I mean, this man has done miracles. This man has, I mean, he's seen things I've never seen and done things I've never done. He's broken the laws of physics. He's performed miracles. He walked on water. He's an amazing guy. Honestly, in the garden, I would have been one of the guys tucking tail and running. I'm going to be honest about that. And here he is like, I'll fight Rome if I've got to. Jesus is that important. And you're like, you're a knucklehead, but okay, go for it. <laughs> but instead, it serves as a warning for us all of our own self-confidence. See, the danger of confidence in self. You see, Peter thinks he's got it, man. He's like, I got this thing. <whistles> no, No, you failed, buddy. And then Jesus is taken off and taken away. He's like, Peter, I got this thing. I'll I'll go with him and follow him even into the belly of the beast. And what does he do? He denies his Savior over and over and over again. And that is really bad. You know what real victory would have looked like for Peter at this point? Staying in the garden and praying. That would have been a total victory to submit himself before the Lord, the throne of grace, and just seek the Lord in prayer. That would have been a total victory. Instead, here we see a portrait of a man who's confident in his own abilities, who's confident in his own successes. He, he's actually overconfident, and it bites him hard. In fact, actually, it's going to have a sting that's going to last for the rest of his life. But he denied the Lord Jesus the most serious of times what do we do with this how does this impact our lives how do we walk away from a passage like this well one is again cultivate the brilliance of jesus as much as you can in fact actually it would be a great thing if one of your regular prayers was that the lord would help you to see jesus as beautiful You talked about the Puritans this morning in Sunday school and the theological Puritans. One of the things they did so excellently and why their writings are still so good today is they had such a high view of the beauty of Christ. I mean, Thomas Boston, high view of the beauty of Christ. Thomas Manton, high view of the beauty, the beauty of Christ. Uh, Perkins, the high view of the beauty of Christ. It was the defining feature of theological puritanism, is radiant view of Christ. And for us that don't have that, it would be appropriate that we seek the Lord, ask the Lord to, again, in our hearts, warm our hearts that we might have a higher view of Christ. And then secondly, the danger for ourselves of overconfidence in self. For those of you that grew up in the church, think about how much this situation right here describes your your middle school and high school years. I'm spiritually mature enough to handle this. I'll go into the belly of the beast. Two hours later, you're like, well, that was a fail. (laughs) Overconfidence in self. Overconfidence in our own abilities. Overconfidence in our ability to flee from temptation fact, actually overconfidence in our ability to resist temptation. And I'll let you in a little secret. Tom and I pray every Friday for the congregation. One of my prayers almost every Friday is that the Lord would keep us from temptation. So Tom and I pray we recognize what do we do when we're tempted? We fail is the answer. We pray that you resist temptation, but more than anything we pray you run. Don't play with it. Don't try to, to, to play with the fire because it will burn you every single time. And instead of having confidence in self, having confidence in our own ability to perform when needed, instead of having confidence in our own merits, our own maturity, our own strength, instead marvel at the beauty of Christ. Because you know the fun part about this? I can still close my eyes, and in my mind, I still see the eclipse. That's one of those things I'll probably remember for most of my life. It's absolutely magnificent. And I will remember the brilliance of the light. It's my prayer, it's my desire, that for me and for you, you would have a similar response to Christ. That in your heart, his brilliance would dominate your mind. His beauty, his faithfulness, his loveliness would dominate our souls. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. In whose name we come to you, we thank you that he is lovely. We thank you that Isaiah 53 is true, that he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by you. And the consequence of it is victory for us. And thank you that while the world would look at him and there was nothing in the world's eyes to value, he is most lovely. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our unfaithfulness. Forgive us for our cockiness and confidence in self. Forgive us. Fill us with Jesus. May we see him to be even more beautiful, even more lovely, we pray in his name. Amen.